So we'll be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, but before we open God's Word, if you just join me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your Word. Lord, and I pray that, um, that you may fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us understanding of your Word. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me, that you would use me simply as your instrument, um, that I may proclaim your Word boldly and clearly as I should. And uh, just open our eyes. And we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for this Christmas. And we just want to glorify you. And we pray this through your name, Christ Jesus. Amen. So have you ever wondered, how did Christianity spread? Like from its humble beginnings, started with some 100 people, in the very beginning, 100 or so followers of Christ, and it's gone on to spread to, and now it's hundreds of millions of people throughout the world. You ever wonder that? How did that happen? I mean, obviously God is number one thing behind that, but how did God use his people to uh, spread the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth? And what we're going to see here in First Peter, I think Peter starts to lay that out for us. Now, as the church lives out its calling, this is what happens. So in first, we're in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 17. And this is in page uh, 1201 in your PRAC Bibles. And if you're just joining us today, welcome. We've been doing a sermon series on 1 Peter. Really, we started, I think, the last week in September. And uh, we've been going through, of course, we took a four-week hiatus uh, to go through Ruth. For the Christmas season, but today we're jumping back into um, 1 Peter. And just a brief overview, in case you don't remember, chapter 1 of 1 Peter, um, Peter is explaining who we are in Christ, what we have in Christ. And then chapter 2, Peter starts to transition. So given what we are and who we are in Christ, what we have in Christ, how then should we live in the world? So that's the question that Peter starts to, to answer here. So let's go to the text. So 1 Peter 2, verse 11 to 17. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Amen. So as we look at this, this is really the beginning of a longer section that takes us all the way through chapter 4. And as we look at this, one thing I want you to keep in the back of your minds is the Sermon on the Mount. Peter was there. He witnessed the Sermon on the Mount and we're going to see the teachings of the Sermon 
on the Mount just permeate this text. As if you could take the, all of the Sermon on the Mount, especially Matthew chapter 5, which is where Jesus talks about how we relate to one another, how we treat one another. If you were to take that and just squeeze it in like you're squeezing fresh orange juice all down into one cup, this is what we see here. So Peter is answering, how do we, answer, how do we live as Christians in the world? And I think that verse 11 and 12, you can say it's the intro, it's, it's the thesis. This is Peter's main point. And then as he goes through the rest of the letter, goes on giving examples and, and explaining what this thesis is. So, verse 11, abstain from sinful desires that war against your soul. This is sort of, I think, obvious as Christians. Now, as God's people, we're to live good, moral lives. I think even non-Christians, they understand that. And Peter's already made it clear in chapter 1. He said, you know, according from the Old Testament, be holy just as I am holy. Not I, Peter, but I, God, is saying this. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect. And people get that, okay? As Christians, we're supposed to be good, do good things, be good in the inside. And um, as we look at this, Peter's thesis, so there's sort of two components here. So verse 11 talks about in here. So as we go, as we live in the world, this is what's supposed to happen inside, the internal aspect of how we do this. And then verse 12 is going to be the external, okay? This is what we do. But as I said, so it's easy to understand verse 11. It's harder to do. I think we would all agree with that. Um, so the state of a Christian, you know, that moment that I repented of my sin, you know, I realized that, that Jesus died on the cross for me and I asked God to forgive me and, and through faith I believe that Jesus paid for my sins. At that moment, God adopts, adopted me as his son. He adopts all who do that as his sons and daughters. And Jesus promises, I will send my spirit to be in you. My spirit will dwell in you. So as a Christian, Christ dwells in us. And yet, I still live in this body. Right? It's the, this tent, my flesh. My flesh desires what it desires. It's sinful. And so there's a tension in a Christian. And this will happen until the day that we're with Christ. You know that... Christ is in us, and yet we also still live in this, in this tent, our, our sinful nature, our flesh. And so there's a tension. Of course, because of the cross, you know, we now have victory over that. We know that we can have victory. And praise God for that. But there's this internal battle, and we have to fight this every single day. And of course, by myself, I cannot do this. And there are many times that I fall. Um, it's only through Christ and God that, that we have victory over this, that we can, that we can abstain from sinful, sinful desires. Um, and it's not just that Christ on the cross, he died for our sins, but also gives us the power to overcome. We're now free from sin. So abstain from sinful desires. And, and one thing, too, before I move on, is that, yes, we're going to fall. Right? None of us are perfect this side of heaven, uh, in, obeying, um, in obeying God. We fall short. But think about it as, as parents, as a father. You know, when, when one of my sons, when they were younger, 
Sometimes all I'd have to do is say, son, you know, just my tone of voice. And then they turn and say, I'm sorry, daddy. You know, they come to me and they're crying and they're running. And what do you do as a parent? You say, you hug them and say, okay, I forgive you. You know, when, when we mess up, that's what we should be. I'm sorry, Father. I've really messed up. Please forgive me. And God forgives us. So, but in the meantime, we want to live our lives for Christ. We want to try to abstain from sinful desires. And we can because Christ is in us. But the times that we fall, we repent. God forgives us. And we can get right back on it and, tr- and keep trying. Keep up the good fight. So that's verse 11. The internal and one final thing is that this internal, really, it determines everything. See, Jesus taught that our outward, the things that we do, they come from where? They come from the heart. It's sort of the fruit of our behavior is a result of what's on the inside in our hearts. So it's very important. How do we live our lives? We have to make sure that our heart issue is right. We have to live to please God. Now, verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. And really, Peter's paraphrasing from the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus said, Matthew five sixteen, he said, Let your light shine before man, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And it's obviously addressing the things, things that we do. Many of our acts, they'll be done in public. They'll be seen by others. And if you were to take that and squeeze it out, what does it look like? I say it's living out the gospel in, in our world. Now, of course, that's a churchy term, and what does that mean? I think it means basically taking God's commands, the two greatest commands, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, and actually doing it, doing it wherever we are. Living out the gospel, meaning Loving one another, caring for one another, helping one another, caring for widows, orphans, those who are in need, forgiving one another, preaching the gospel, obeying God and his commands. Good deeds. Let your light shine among men. Now, Peter adds a clause in here, though. He says that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, suffering unjustly, though innocent. This is a phrase that, or a theme that we're going to see over and over again through the rest of Peter's letter here. Persecution of God's church is real. It was real back then, it's real today. And persecution of God's church is not only being thrown into jail or, or dying for Christ, but it, when people, you can be slandered. No, because I follow Christ, people talk bad about me. Say, so how come you don't do that? Oh, and they, they say bad things. Think about public figures who have openly proclaimed they believe the Bible. What does the media do to these people? They, it's like they're pilloried. No, they're made to look foolish, ignorant. People, because they follow the Bible, will be called haters. No, um, intolerant. Persecution or, uh, may accuse you of doing wrong is not only... Um, going to jail. If you're at school, it can be, oh, well, I don't want to participate in those parties. I don't want to do what those kids do. And so people make fun of you. No, it's going to happen. And this should not be a surprise. 
No, Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. See, the cross, it's offensive. The cross is offensive to many people. Just saying the cross, now when I say the cross, I mean what Jesus did on the cross, obviously. But to say that that's the only way for salvation, it gets many people quite angry. No, they say, how dare you tell me how I can be saved? No, people who re- represent Christ in the cross, just because we are Christ's ambassadors, it's going to get people mad just by who we are. But we should not be surprised. We should not be surprised. Jesus said this is going to happen. It's going to happen. Though they may accuse you of doing wrong. But then the final part of verse 12, notice it says, um, Though they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, what does this mean? I take this to mean, you know, pagans glorifying God on the day he returns, that they will be saved. And why do I think that? Because if you go back to verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9, Peter writes, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. God has called us out of darkness. I used to live in the darkness. I used to live as the pagans. All of us. No, not one of us is righteous. Not even one. Living in the darkness. And yet, that, that moment that I repented and believed in Jesus Christ, that he's died for my sins. We became God's chosen people. We became his adopted sons and daughters. And he took us out of the darkness and brought us into his light. And now we may praise God forever. And when it says on the day that he visits us, take this to mean when Christ comes back. So who is it? that will glorify God on the day that he returns. It's those who have repented and believed in him. No, his chosen people. So summarizing this thesis, right? and I wanted to spend extra time in this because really Peter explains for the next several chapters this thesis, what's going on here. So just in summary, I think Peter's saying and answering how we are to live in the world that by the way the church lives and conducts itself in the midst of injustice and suffering, accusations, and just a messed up world, people will see how we live, that we still continue you know, to live as children of God. The, the Sermon on the Mount lived out. They'll see that and they'll be drawn to it as if we were the aroma of Christ. And people will see that and they'll wonder, like, how is this possible? You know, I am persecuting you and yet you show me kindness? How can you do that? No, people say, no, I've been mean to you and yet you pray for me? How is that possible? People will come alongside and they'll say, what is going on here? And of course, this is the opportunity. Peter explains in the next chapter, no, always be prepared for the reason that you have, for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. 
This is where we're able to share the gospel. So we've lived the gospel in front of them. They've seen it. They're wondering, how is this possible? And then we can share the gospel. Faith comes through hearing. And I can tell them, I say, you know why I can pray for you? Even though you're mean to me, even though you, you hurt me, it's because Jesus is alive. Jesus Christ is alive. And I've been forgiven of my sins. And I've been transformed. That's how. And it's real. This is who I am. You know? And it's through hearing the gospel that people then will be able to be saved. You know? And it's not as if this is manipulating people. I mean, this is who I am. And people will come and they'll ask, it's just me or just us as God's body living out the gospel. You know, the Sermon on the Mount squeezed down into our lives in our community. People, what's up with this? And it's just, this is who we are. So that's Peter's thesis. Now, what does this look like lived out? What does it look like? So we see verse 13 to 17. Starts to break it down for us. And starting in the sphere of public life. First of all, what to do, then why, and then practical application of what it looks like. So what does Peter say? Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. So we're looking at the public sphere here. Submit for the Lord's sake. What does that mean? Today the word submit it's almost like he said the S word. Right? It's almost like it's a bad word today. Ooh, how could I ever submit? No, it's all about me. It's what I want. But biblical submission, biblical submission does not mean to be a doormat or a slave. It's a voluntary act of serving someone else out of love for Christ. You know, for the Lord's sake. A very important point of biblical submission. We do it because we choose to do it. Because Christ submitted to the will of the Father for our sake. Biblical submission really is to be like Christ. It's one of the characteristics of Christ. Think about how it's described in Philippians 2. Jesus left His throne. He came as a man. He died on the cross. Why? Because of his love for the Father and his love for us. He submitted himself. He's the perfect example of submission. Think about the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus' final night. Jesus is praying. What does he pray? He says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Even in the face of death. Jesus submitted perfectly to the will of the Father. So Peter here commands the churches receiving this letter to submit to the authorities. This is not something easy. He's basically commanding the church to submit to the very people who are mistreating them. Think about that. And unjustly. And oftentimes the very cause of their suffering and persecution. He's saying submit to them. Authorities, think about the Roman Empire. You have in Jerusalem, you have the Jewish ruling council. They're often wicked, unjust, corrupt. Some things haven't changed very much. In this letter, 1 Peter, 
It's believed to be written approximately 61 or 62, even 63 A.D., during Emperor Nero's reign, the Roman Empire. Nero is considered, historians consider him one of the worst emperors. And this is the same Emperor Nero who just a few years later, after the writing of this letter, had Peter executed. He had Paul executed. The same one. And yet Peter's saying, submit to him. And Peter, if you look at his life in Acts chapter 5, Peter and the apostles, uh, they, were, uh, in pr- they were arrested by the Sanhedrin. They were flogged. Why? For preaching the name of Jesus. In Acts chapter 12, King Herod, he, he, ha- he arrested the apostle James, had him beheaded, saw that it pleased the people. So what did he do? He said, okay, let's arrest Peter and do the same thing to Peter. And yet an angel came in the night and freed Peter and off he went. But Peter knows. He's, he's been the victim of, of bad rulers. And yet he says, submit to the authorities. And this is not something that's only Peter. We see this throughout the New Testament. Uh, Paul, in Romans 13, tells the Roman church, submit to the authorities. In the book of Hebrews, which is written in the midst, the context of Hebrews, tremendous suffering by the church. And yet Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. This is, we are called to submit to the authorities, even if they're bad. So why? Why submit? Why should we submit to the authorities? So I think verse 15 explains this for us. It says, For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. In a way, this is sort of reiterating the thesis, verses 11 and 12. Um, and to think about the opposite of this, so it's God's will that, we're being, that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. What if we're arrested and we actually did sin? What if we actually did rob a bank or <laughs> whatever it is? Think about how that would ruin our testimony. Think about those times that we've seen on TV that preachers get caught in adultery, how it ruins their ministry. It ruins their testimony. So it's the opposite. It's by doing good that we should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. And Jesus told us, he said, pray for those who persecute us. We need to be obedient. Have God's perspective on things. God's perspective. What if our suffering, what if our perseverance in the wake of false accusations, people hating us, accusing us? What if it's the means by which God draws people to the gospel? Think about that. It should not be a surprise. After all, Christ's suffering, His suffering on the cross is what brought us salvation. And we are now Christ's ambassadors. We are His representatives here on earth. Should we be surprised that God uses the suffering of His people to draw people to Himself. Pray for those who persecute you. We need to have God's perspective on this. It's, by doing his, it's His will. It's His will that by doing good should silence the opposition. So practical application. 
So what does submit to the authorities look like? So I think we see here in verses 16 and 17, live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. So boiled down, I think, number one, submit to authorities, obey the law. Obey the law. And sometimes the law is sort of vague. Well, in best conscience, you know, as, you know for, for submitting to the Lord, obey the law. Uh, something else, do not slander your rulers. Do not slander the rulers. It says, honor the king. doesn't matter how uh, opposed you are to our president. Next fall, we have a presidential election. If Donald Trump should win the presidency, it says, do not slander Donald Trump. If Hillary Clinton should win the presidency, it says, honor the king or the queen. Do not slander Hillary Clinton. We need to honor them. How do we honor the king? By obeying them. We also honor them with our, with our mouths. Do not slander them. Something else, I think it's, it's obvious, but it needs to be said, is pay your taxes. Jesus showed this uh, twice. First of all, he said the famous, famous line, you know, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But he also paid the temple tax. If you recall, uh, someone came to Peter and said, hey, does your master pay the temple tax? And Peter said, yes, he does. And so Jesus said to Peter, hey, Peter, go fishing. And the first fish that you catch inside its mouth will be a two drachma coin. Take that coin and pay the temple tax for you and for me. So Peter did that. Jesus paid the temple tax. And this is astounding because, if you recall, Jesus last week alive during his Passion Week, he went into the, the temple. He condemned the temple. He overthrew all the tables and the money lenders and money lenders and all that. But his words as well, he said, you know, you have made this temple a den of thieves. He didn't say, you know, we have a few things that we need to reform here. We've got a couple issues. No, he called it a den of thieves, the temple. This is the origin of the wickedness. This is where the thieves live, right here. This is the temple. He condemned the temple. And yet, he paid the temple tax. And he knew what was going on. Pay your taxes. Now, I think it raises the question, are there situations when we cannot submit to the government or rulers? And the answer is yes. Now, if the rulers call on us to sin or to disobey God, think back to Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar, the a Babylonian king built a 50-foot statue made of gold, commanded everybody, you must come before this and bow down and worship it. And we have our friends um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refused. We will not bow down to that statue. Why? Because it blatantly violates the Ten Commandments. Do not have a graven image. No, do not bow down to any other gods. Right? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar explicitly commanded them to sin, and they refused. In God, we see that God delivered them. Sometimes God doesn't, right? but they obeyed God. 
God's law has authority over everything. Um, also, Peter. Peter and John, in, in Acts chapter 4, they were arrested. They were brought before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin said, you cannot, you know, we forbid you to preach in, in this name, in the name of Jesus. What was Peter's response? He said, you judge for yourself whether it's right to obey you over God. And of course, we know that Peter went on and preached the name of Jesus for the rest of his life. So sometimes, but we need to use judgment, sometimes um, we cannot submit to the government if they're calling us to sin or disobey God. Now, what if there's an injustice or some obvious wrong, but it's not as if the government is commanding us um, explicitly to sin? Are we just to sit and be quiet? And I'd say the answer is no. But remember, we're to go about this in a peaceful, law-abiding way. Remember, submit as serving the Lord. I think of Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King is probably the most admired, respected American in the 20th century through the entire world. He fought for civil rights, obviously a great injustice. Fought for racial equality. And people admire him. Not, and obviously what he did was of extreme importance. But it's not only that, it's also how he did it. How he did it. He did it in a way, in a peaceful way. Um, really, the last verse, right, verse 15, for it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. That's what Martin Luther King did. That's what he did. So, in these situations, yes, it's okay, but we need to do it in a way that's, that's okay. We're not to break the law as we do this. One final take on this. What about public officials? What about public officials? What if you actually work in the government? What if you're a public school teacher like me? So we know that there's separation of church and state. This is the law. What does that mean in the workplace? Because Christ has commanded us. He says, go make disciples to the ends of the earth. What does that mean? Well, in schools as a teacher... I cannot share my religious views during school, during class. I submit to the authority. You think about it, probably it wouldn't work very well if I said, okay, class, today we're going to learn the present tense of these verbs. Oh, and by the way, Jesus died for your sins. It probably would not be a good lesson plan. Probably not very effective. However, if students ask questions about it, I'm allowed to answer. If they ask questions, what does the Bible say about this? I can answer them. Or what do you think about this? And I answer that, but I say, well, the Bible says this. I'm allowed to answer them. And I thank God he's given me many opportunities, many opportunities to share in this way. But I just have to say it requires prayer. I need to pray. You know, fulfillment of the Great Commission, make disciples, to the entire world. Now, in my view, it does not stop when I enter the workplace. It includes the workplace. It says, the, Jesus said, the entire world, all nations, includes our workplace. But I pray, I pray to God that he would open the door for our message, which is the gospel. I pray that God would protect me from the evil one. I pray that may I have great uh, 
discernment when I should speak, when I should be quiet. And I have to, I have to tell you, there have been a few times, a few occasions during my teaching career where I was so concerned for a student, I literally thought that this student might die over the weekend because his choices were so destructive. They were so just out of control. I really thought that this student would die. And I was praying to God, Lord, and this is not something, so I've had the student in class, and it's not just from one day to the next. It's pattern of behavior over and over again. I pray, God, please give me the opportunity. Please have mercy on this, on this student. And God gave me an opportunity. And so an appropriate time, it wasn't in the middle of class, but I would ask, I'd say, can I share something with you from the Bible? And they'd say, yes. And so I always go to my, my go-to verse, which is Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And I would, always, I would always draw it out, if you're familiar with the bridge diagram. So I'd explain this verse to them. Now, one side of my paper, I would, I would draw God on his throne. And the other side of the paper, stick figures, of course, would be the student. And then in the middle, there's a separation. See, the wages of sin is death. Because of our sin, we cannot come into God's presence. Because of our sin, I am eternally separated from God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So because our sins, Jesus took them on the cross. Now, my sin issue is taken care of. It's a gift. And now I can come into God's presence. And that, in that space in the middle, I draw the cross. So the cross is now the bridge through which I can now come into God's presence. And I share that with my student. And all, all honesty, to my knowledge, none of these students that I've shared this with, that I've felt this strongly for, none of them are believers at this moment. But they're still alive. And uh, they were always receptive. They are always receptive. I think they appreciate it because, see, they knew that I was telling them this because I cared for them. You talk about an unlovable student. I mean, these, these boys, they define that. Right? Talking about pulling, you know, you hear about stories about Students that make you want to pull your hair out, right here. And yet, trying to love an unlovable student, trying to, do, to be kind, to respond to their um, disrespect and these things with love. And, and I think they appreciated it. And you know what? Some of them, they still come back to visit. <laughs> they still come back to visit. But it requires discernment. So... Um, anyway, I just praise God for those opportunities. And one final observation from this uh, application. So we'll talk briefly about verse 16. Verse 16 is such an, an incredibly rich verse. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. So here, Peter's telling us, live as free men, live as servants of God, but he, we've just been told to submit. So submit, but now we're free men. And to add even more depth, this word that says, you know, live as servants of God, that word in Greek can also be translated to um, bondservant or even slave. 
So it could say, live, so submit, live as free men, but live as slaves to God. So what's up with that? <laughs> live as free men. First of all, I think it highlights the fact that when I submit, I'm, I'm a free man. I submit because I choose to submit. I choose to. Um, also, it's not through the obedience of the law that I'm saved. It's through grace, which is God's gift. And also, if you remember in verse 11, abstain from sinful desires. No, it's because we are in Christ that we can say no to sin. We're not under its power. I'm free. But one thing, Peter adds a little disclaimer here. We can't say, well, I'm forgiven in Christ. His blood has covered all my sins, so I can just go and do what I want because what's the big deal? I'll get forgiven in the end anyway. And he's saying, no, that, you can't do that. That's cheap grace. It shows a lack of understanding of the gospel. We were bought at a price. Plus, in the view of context here, it stains our testimony. It stains our testimony. And one final thing about this verse. So, I'm, set, I'm free, set free from my sins, but God, the High King, is my master. And whereas before, I was a slave to sin, and God was my enemy. I was a slave to sin. It's what I did naturally. It was all about me. It's what I wanted, when I wanted, and that was it. And if it hurt other people, too bad. I was a slave to sin, and God was my enemy. But when I repented, and I asked God his forgiveness, and believed in my heart through faith that Christ died for my sins, surrendering to his lordship, that situation, it got flipped. Got flipped. Whereas once I was a slave to sin, now I'm free. Where once I was God's enemy, now I'm his servant. Praise God. And if there's anybody here, if this is sort of new to you, or you're not really sure where you're at, I just encourage you, surrender to the Lord, to the King, and he'll set you free from your sins. If the, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Amen. And just finally, wrapping this all up, remember my original question, how was it that Christianity grew so much? If you were to look at church history through the years, where is it, if you look on a chart, where is it that Christianity has just grown exponentially? And oftentimes you'll see it's in places or in societies where Christianity and Christians are persecuted, where the government is against them. And, and yet, the people have lived out, they've obeyed this teaching. And Christianity has just grown exponentially. Isn't that amazing? Do you know today, in the world, okay, from people who study these things, do you know what they say is the top, or the country where the Christianity is growing at the fastest rate? The fastest growing country in, Christi- you know, in terms of Christianity is the nation of Iran. Or Iran, as you might want to say. Iran, it's growing at 20%. 20% a year. In 1979, there were 500 Christians in Iran. Of course, these are, I don't know if they 
can really know exactly the number, but you know what I mean. 500, 500 total in the nation of Iran. Today, 2015, they estimate that there's 300,000 to 1 million Christians in Iran. A nation where it's to, to convert from Islam to Christianity is punishable by death. Where pastors are frequently imprisoned, thrown into jail. Iran. You know, the, um, the Bible app, which I have it here. Bible app, a lot of you may have it. The Version Bible app. In the year 2015, celebrated its 200 millionth download worldwide. And they keep records of the countries you know, and how many downloads in each country. In the nation of Iran, since the year 2013, so just in the last two years, the percent increase of downloading this Bible app, and it's in Farsi, that has it in, I don't know how many languages. They can read it in Farsi, which is the language of Iran. The percent increase in Iran is 1,886%. In just the last two years, downloading the Bible app. And you ask, why? How is this possible? Well, when God's people are faithful, they take the Sermon on the Mount and they squeeze it out and that's their life. No, even in the face of persecution and injustice, as they submit to the authorities, it draws people to the gospel. And people can hear the gospel. People see that this is real. It's real. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is real. He is the King. Amen. Just join me in prayer. Lord God, I just thank you for your word. I pray that we may live out your gospel in society, just everywhere we are, on the inside and on the outside. Pray that we may prove faithful. And I pray for pray that everyone may be saved because you are a king and you are on your throne. And praise to your name, Christ Jesus. Amen.